Psalm 63 tonight. Zeal in the wilderness. We're looking and studying through 2 Samuel, and I thought it would be helpful for us to look at some of the psalms that are born out of the experiences David endures. We're in a situation in David's life where it's hard to imagine a greater difficulty taking place. Uh, that David is in 2 Samuel fleeing from his own son. He had, David ex- had extended grace to Absalom. And then Absalom took time and opportunity to come up with a conspiracy to to betray and depose his own father. So David's on the run from his own son who's betrayed him. And it's ultimately going to end in Absalom's death and David's further grief. It's hard to imagine a more challenging situation. And in Psalm 63, it's to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. And it's, I'm sorry, Psalm 63, I was reading 65. A psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Most people understand this to be in that, this context when he's on the run from Absalom. Because in the last verses, he's going to refer to himself as the king. Uh, the previously, he had been in the wilderness. He wasn't king yet. But now he's going to have this experience again. And so... What I I find helpful about Psalm 63 and David writing this psalm about that experience and that terrible trying time in his life is not only does David survive the wilderness, but he spiritually thrives as a result of it. You know, friends, to, to, to survive the challenges of life is one thing, but how do you spiritually thrive in the midst of them? That's one of the things I think Psalm 63 can help us with, to not only survive, but to thrive. And how is that even possible? How is that even possible? Not only, not only to persevere, but to be praising God while we're persevering. Not only to endure, but to endure with joy. Well, we need God. We need God. <laughs> that's how you do it. And that's why you see in Psalm 63... Let's read the passage, and then we'll break it down. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. One of the things Spurgeon says about this psalm is that though David is in the wilderness, there is not a wilderness in his heart. Though he's in the desert, there's not a desert in his heart. 
He is desiring God. He begins by expressing his zealous commitment to God. And again, this is our greatest need, especially when going through trials or the wilderness, is God. Oh God, you are my God. He makes this confession that God is his God. And that's not going to change. And then he essentially makes this resolution earnestly, I seek you. But even in the midst of this incredibly terrible and tragic reality in his life, I'm going to see God. He has zeal for God in the midst of the wilderness. We need to recognize our need for God. And look at the analogy he uses to further express this and explain it. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He uses the analogy of thirst for his soul's need for God. As the flesh thirsts for water in a dry and weary land, so his soul thirsts for God. This life-giving desire for water, that's what his soul is like in its desire for God, in his desire for God. Friends, so oftentimes in the, in, in the wilderness, it's easy for us to desire other things or get distracted. But David recognizes he needs God. Or it's easy, I think, for people when we go through the wilderness to look for other sources to satisfy our thirst or our need. This is what Jeremiah talks about when in one of Jeremiah's rebukes of the people. It's actually God's rebuke of the people in Jeremiah. If you look at Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two great evils. And here's the two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. So that's evil, to forsake God. But look at the second one. And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're seeking other sources for hope, and joy and zeal rather than God. So what does the desert do to us? It should drive us to the water. And that's one of the ways God uses these trials and these experiences to renew our zeal in Him. More on that in a minute. And notice, this is, a, this is essentially the psalm being a song or a prayer. Within the song or the prayer, there's a commitment here, earnestly I seek you. And you're going to see this all through the psalm, which I think is instructive for how we endure, how we thrive spiritually, even in difficult times. We have these resolutions about how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to seek God. I can't control X, Y, or Z. I would never have chosen A, B, or C. But in the midst of it, I'm going to seek God. And we just have to go in, we have to go into every day with this kind of zealous resolve and commitment I'm going to seek God. And I think prayer helps reinforce that. Praying a scripture like this every day helps train me that no matter what I face in life, I'm going to seek God. Hearing biblical preaching on scriptures like this reminds us, I'm going to seek God. She always brings up the question, as a Christian, what are you seeking? And you hear David's zeal, earnestly I seek you. Or how are you seeking? What does your seeking, your pursuit of God, look like? Does it look like David's pursuit of God? This is one of the reasons I'm captivated by this brother, David. 
I think he provides such an excellent example in his pursuit of God, in his love for God, in his love for the things of God, expressed oftentimes in his love for worship. So not only does David have this zealous commitment to God expressed in verse 1, he also has a zealous commitment to worship. Look at it in verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Incidentally, what happens in the sanctuary? Worship. David in the wilderness is recalling his experience of worship. Incidentally, I would just make this case. You can, this is maybe a stretch, so you've got to think about this and search the scripture to see if this is true. When David says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, what does he mean by that? There's very few people in scripture who literally behold the visible glory of God. Very few people. I mean, Adam and Eve. Isaiah is in the throne room of God and, and sees the glory of God. And incidentally, there's, there's clouds, right? I think there's always clouds or smoke to veil the glory of God from, from killing people. Or Mount Sinai, there's, again, smoke and clouds when God descends upon the mountain. But biblically speaking and historically, you see very few people in history who get to visibly witness an appearance of God. This is not normal in the Old Testament. It seems strange that if David had witnessed something like that, he would have wrote about it. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. What I think he's talking about here when he says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, I think, I think he's referring to what happens in worship. And what happens in worship? Well, certainly one of the things that happens is the reading of the Word of God. That in hearing the Word of God and the revelation of God in his written Word, David sees God in a sense. The same way when we read the Scripture or when we hear the Scripture read and listen and pay attention, you can see what God says about himself. And in a sense, you can see God. But David has this zealous commitment to worship. Incidentally, this is one of the great things you learn from David's example. He loves to worship God with God's people. And you read these passages about David and he's just captivated by worshiping God with God's people. Which I think is highly instructive and encouraging for us. And why does he do that? He has commitments to worship because of what God is like. It's not based on how I feel, right, on Sunday. I mean, a lot of Sunday mornings you're not going to feel like worshiping God. No, it's based on what God is like. Look at what he goes on to explain. Beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now, you see, worship is a response to God. It's a response to what God is like and what God has done. Beholding your power. Worship is a response to the greatness of God. God's greatness revealed in his word, how great he is, how powerful he is, how strong he is. Nothing's impossible to God. Causes us to worship him because of his glory. You praise him because of his greatness. You praise him, you worship him in a response to his glory, his gravity. Glory being the idea of weight. God is weighty. He's significant. He's the, he's the ultimate significance. And that calls for worship because he's so worthy. It demands us to praise his name. 
and say he's so great. We also worship as a response of his grace. Look at what he goes on to say, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. It's because of God's steadfast love. God's, this is the closest the Old Testament comes to the word, of great, the word grace. You, you find this in, in essentially God forgiving David of his sin. God did that because of his steadfast love, not because David's such a great guy. David continue, God continues to love and use David because of his steadfast love. You study David's writings, this is probably the most emphasized attribute of, da- of, of God that David continually over and over again refers to. David's always talking about the steadfast love of the Lord. And it never ceases. And that's a reason to worship him. And incidentally, look at how David describes the steadfast love in this verse. Better than life. Think about that. And, and think about how that would change our lives if we believe that. The steadfast love of God, the way God loves me, is better than anything I have in life. It's better in a lot of ways. It never ceases. I mean, what in this life is never going to cease? Everything here ceases. God's love doesn't. His love for you. So what should we do? Well, we should do what David does. Resolve to praise him. Look at it. Because your steadfast love is better than life, because of this reality about you, my lips will praise you. Praise is a verbal expression based on God's greatness. It's a, it's a verbal expression of importance. You praise your wife, and you should if you're a guy. My goodness, you're an awesome woman. You're praising her because she's valuable. You praise your dog. Good dog. Wait a sip. You're expressing his value. So what, we do this far more fundamentally important than talking to a dog. We, do the, we verbally express the greatness of God. That's what praise is. It's a response to God. And notice worship, again, is also a resolve. And this, this is one of the things you learn from David. It's going to come through all through this psalm. This is why worship is not based on how I feel today. Worship is not based on what is going on in my life. Worship is a resolve. I will praise his, his name. And notice again, it's based on unchanging realities about him. His steadfast love is better than life. Therefore, my lips will praise him. And you see, these, these realities about God, his power, his glory, his steadfast love, those are unchanging. Those are, those are transcendent realities about God that will never change. That's why there's always a reason, no matter what's going on in my life and no matter how hard it is, to praise him. David speaks of this often. Psalm 57 is from his first experience in the wilderness when he's running from Saul. Listen to Psalm 57, 4 through 10. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So, so essentially David is in a hard place in Psalm 57. He's in a hard place. He's in the cave, surrounded by criminals, on the run. In that case, for, for just essentially being faithful. And look at what he says in verse 5. This, this is the refrain of the hymn. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's a refrain. You find it again in the very last verse of the psalm. Look what he goes on to say. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. 
but they have fallen into it themselves, Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. So you see, worship is a resolve. I'm going to praise God. I will sing to God. Verse 8, awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I'm going to be up in the morning when the sun rises praising God. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. One of the challenges about wilderness experiences or difficulties is bitterness. Bitterness is easy trap to fall into. Whether you're bitter at other people, bitter at God, friends, bitterness just poisons the soul. Bitterness poisons the soul. Or, or if, if you go or when you go through hard times, it, it, it is easy to become hardened. I, I think this happens to a lot of people as they get older. You just go through so many things. And life is so challenging. And, and the world is so evil. You just become hardened to it and callous to it. You, you don't get that flavor from David's Psalms as he goes through and navigates difficult things. We get hurt in so many ways in this world and in this life. You get hurt in the church. I mean, usually, oftentimes in, in church life, it's just easier to check out than deal with these people or deal with this pastor. It could just be an easier option not to deal with that. And just be hardened toward it or turn your back on it. David has a zealous commitment to worship and so should we. I think it comes from his satisfaction in God in verse 5. We should find our satisfaction in God in the wilderness. How can you thrive in this kind of an experience? Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. My soul, again, that's what which is inside of me, that which no enemy, no disease, no trial can touch. My soul will be satisfied. And again, this other analogy. As with fat and rich food. In, in David's day, fat is a blessing, right? It's kind of like the ribeye steak. We have this adjective. It's marbled. That means it's full of fat. Right? And fat gives it a certain taste. You know, the ancients don't get fatty meat a lot, but when they do, man, it's a blessing from God. And for them, eating a piece of fat is like a huge blessing, right? For us, we're going to cut it off probably and watch our waistline, or at least I need to, because I get it all the time. Bacon in the morning, bacon in the evening, bacon at supper time. As we are, as I am satisfied in bacon, David is satisfied in God. Finds his joy in him. He'll be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So now there's a, there's a, um, there is a type of praise going on here. It's not merely lament, which has a place. In this case, it's joyful lips is the resolve. And it's because of his satisfaction in God. And it's so easy, isn't it, to turn to other places for satisfaction. When our ultimate satisfaction needs to be and should be 
in God. There's so many psalms that speak about this. Let me, let me read a few. Psalm 4. This is, this is my favorite psalm from Mardi Gras. I think it's a great psalm to share with people at Mardi Gras time. Psalm 4, 7, and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God's given me more joy than they have when their grain and wine abounds. Because God makes me sleep in safety and security. Psalm 1611, which Acts 2 quotes as referencing Jesus Christ. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Is there anything in this life or this world that can give you fullness of joy? Where does that come from? It comes from God. It's in His presence. It's in Him. It's through Him. And that's why my satisfaction should be in Him. That's what Moses prays. I believe it's Moses in Psalm 90. A great prayer to memorize and learn. Psalm 90 and verse 14. Satisfy me in the morning. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that I may sing and be glad all of my days. I memorized it in New American Standard. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days is ESV. But notice the prayers. God, let me be satisfied in you. Psalm 90 in the, the context of difficult days in a difficult world. Our satisfaction needs to be in God. I mean, I, I hope that I get the chance to witness to Mick Jagger. He's saying I can't get no satisfaction. Which, by the way, I noticed today is a double negative. Mick Jagger can't get no grammar. It's a problem. I can't get no satisfaction literally means I have satisfaction. And I want to just talk to Mick about, Mick, do you know what would really satisfy you forever? You can find satisfaction in lots of things in this world that might satisfy you for a little while, but only Jesus Christ provides eternal satisfaction. That, Mick, is how you can have satisfaction. But the messages of this world is you can't get it. You don't have it. Well, in Jesus, we do. Verse 6, here's how it comes. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You see what David's doing at night when he's on the run in the wilderness? He's remembering God. The watches of the night. So the watches of the night is essentially when a sentry would stay up and protect the people. Which is interesting, isn't it, that David the king is, is taking part in that. Usually not what kings do. Probably when your son has betrayed you and is out to kill you, you probably are not sleeping all that well anyway. But what is David thinking about? In the context of his own son betraying him and conspiring against him and all the other stuff that's gone on in his family, what is he thinking about at night? Look what it says. I meditate on you. I meditate on you. I mean, do you have nights you can't sleep because of anxieties? or challenges, or struggles. I'm assuming most of us have that. Some of us probably more than others. What do you think about in those times? Friends, David, in a terrible trial, thinks about God. He thinks about God. That's, one of, that's, I think, one of the ways you, you can thrive in the midst of the wilderness. 
What are you setting your mind on? Set your mind on God. You meditate on the Scripture. When you're meditating on Scripture, what you're meditating on is the truth. When you meditate on anxieties, you're meditating on, at best on vague possibilities that usually are negative about things you have no control over. So at night, meditate on God. When you can't sleep, meditate on God. Wayward children, I mean, this is a perennial problem. David's experiencing it to the nth degree when he writes Psalm 63. He loves his betraying son. And how's he going to survive that? He meditates on God. He trusts God. He also finds his security in God. Look at verse 7. For you have been my help. Notice that he he recalls history. God's helped him before. And, And praise God we have this history of God's faithfulness in our life. We've been through difficulties before. God's been there. God's brought us through. He'll bring us through again. Through many dangerous trials and snares, I have already come. How are you going to get home? His grace has led me safe thus far, and his grace will bring me home. You have been my help. My help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. There it is again. A resolve to worship God in a certain way in the shadow of the wings of God. That's security. That even though David's in the wilderness, he has security from God. The idea of God's wing being a shadow is again another analogy of protection, security. And it's in that place, David resolves, I'll sing. And not just sing, right? I might be able by discipline to make myself sing. I will sing with joy. That takes some grace, doesn't it? Verse 8, he finds his stability in God. Not only his security, but also his stability, verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The my soul clings to you, that word cling there, uh, is the word you have in Genesis 2, that a husband shall leave his father and mother and cling or cleave to his wife. It speaks of the deepest, strongest bond of human relationships being marriage. And it speaks, incidentally, of an indissoluble, it's a hard word to say, bond. it's 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 a bond that cannot be broken. That's the idea. And essentially, he uses that language with regard to God. And it's, again, his soul clings to God. His soul clings to God. It's a word that Ruth uses whenever Ruth leaves Moab to, to, to go with Naomi. She clung to Naomi. It's this strong commitment to another. David uses that word, incidentally a somewhat rare word in the Old Testament, to refer to his relationship to God. He is stable in his relationship to God. He is clinging to God. And notice why. Your right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. That's why as Christians, when we understand 
the perseverance of the saints rightly. We understand my perseverance, just like my salvation, is based on Jesus and him alone. I'm not persevering because of me. I am persevering because of the grace of God and the Son of God and his grace at work in me. When Paul writes to Timothy, and Timothy is discouraged and having a difficult time in 2 Timothy, Paul tells him in 2 Timothy 2.1, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians need to be hearing that. As a believer, his grace does not stop or it's not only limited to your faith or your believing in the Son. No, His grace continues and abides in your life and through your life and throughout your life and you should be strong in that. That's what our perseverance is staked on. That's why our perseverance is sure. Not because I'm strong. That's crazy. It's because God is strong. His promises are invincible. We find our stability in God. I'm not, ho- I'm not upholding myself in this wilderness. My only hope is for God to uphold me. Again, I mean, what other hope has he got? I mean, his son's betrayed him. His son in just a few weeks is going to be dead. What a terrible tragedy. What, what else has he got? He ha- God has got to up. Only God can get him through this. Only God can help him through this terrible trial. And he recognizes that. Your right hand upholds me. The last verses, I think, speak to our hope in future vindication. How do you survive the wilderness? How do you not only survive but thrive in the midst of challenge and difficulty and pain? Well, you have hope in something better to come. That the wilderness experience is not forever and it is not the end. David recognizes that. Look at, look at verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Interesting, I mean, one of the people he's referring to there has to be his son, which I really don't understand. I haven't figured all that out yet, how he can write this. Other than Psalm 63 may be written after the fact, and he's had a chance to meditate and think through all that went on. And now he's writing a psalm much later, reflecting on how he endured that season, maybe. This is a strange statement. Verse 10 They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is a hope in his future vindication. That as as faithful believers in God, we can't control the circumstances. There's many things we go through in life we would never choose or desire. But we know... At the end, vindication is coming for the faithful. Not only that, there's restoration coming for the faith. Much greater restoration for us believers, we know about the resurrection. There's glorification coming. You understand, you're going to be glorified because of Jesus Christ with God. Not in the same way as God, but your glorification is coming. That's encouragement to endure and hold fast and stay faithful and continue. This is my, my favorite prayer in the New Testament is Colossians 1, 11 and 12. We, we looked at that prayer at the end of Ephesians, or Ephesians 1. We looked at a prayer this morning in Romans 15. Look at, look at Paul's prayer in Colossians 1. This is my favorite one because it's so challenging. 
But, it, but it's, it's rooted in this future hope, this future salvation. You know, that, that your salvation is, yes, now you have been saved, but you will be saved as well. And you have hope in that. Look at, look at the prayer in Colossians 1, 11 and 12. It's a great prayer. It's a prayer for endurance. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So that's, that's where you, your strength comes from. And look at, the, look at the character of that strength, his glorious might. And what's it for? It's for all endurance and patience. You be strengthened by God, by his glorious might, for the purpose of endurance and patience. And then those next two words, with joy. That's the part that I've got to pray. Right? There's, there's things that come into our life, maybe the lesser trials that challenge us. Well, I can, just, I can just buckle my chin strap. I can just gut it out, and I can toughen up and get through this. Yeah, right? That's just part of life. But to do it with joy is quite a different matter. I can just gut it out and endure it, but the prayer here is strengthened by his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. How in the world? How in the world? Well, one of the ways is in the next verse, and it's in Psalm 63 as well. Look at, look at Colossians 1.12. Giving thanks to the Father. Why? Who is, or who? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See what it says God has done for you. He has qualified you. Qualified you for what? To share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And again, if you think back to Ephesians, all that inheritance language, here it is in Colossians. But that's one of the ways you can persevere or endure with joy because God has qualified you for an, an eternal inheritance. The stuff in this life we know is going to fade. You're qualified for an unfading treasure. And that's why, again, we don't minimize the difficulties here. We don't pretend like they're not real, we don't pretend like they don't hurt. I think life is just going from one trial to another. I don't mean to be pessimistic. I think that's just realistic. But it's how do we go from one trial to another? With endurance, with joy. How? God has qualified you. There's future vindication and salvation and redemption and glorification coming. Now, it's the final encouragement hopefully, about surviving the wilderness. One of the things you see the wilderness does in David's life and, and this experience, again, you read about David in 2 Samuel 13 and 14, and you just meet this paralyzed, passive man who just seems so weak and pathetic. It's very un-David-like. 2 Samuel 12, 13, and 14 are very un-David-like. Psalm 63 is what we've come to expect from this man of God. But he was paralyzed by pain and difficulty and distress. But it's when he goes into the wilderness, when he's, <clears throat> when he's ejected from Jerusalem by his own son, what does that do for his faith? Well, Psalm 63 shows you this is a different guy than what you read about in 2 Samuel 13 and 14. Something's happened. 
The wilderness has happened. What happens in the wilderness is that it sharpens your focus. How does God get our attention? Oftentimes through pain. Maybe you're not as stubborn as me, but essentially one of the only ways I learn is by pain. We learn from the sufferings of others. We learn from faithful men and women who have endured suffering. We learn how God uses suffering to strengthen the faith of his people. And what happens to David? It renews his spiritual vitality. And is this going to be the only valley he faces? No. Is Bathsheba going to be the only sin he commits? Of course not. There's more coming. But in the midst of it, you see a guy who writes Psalm 63, and you see his faith expressed here. Let me share with you some quotes from Charles Spurgeon, who was himself a sufferer. I've just been very encouraged by these. He writes a lot about struggle uh, because he struggled a, a, good, a great deal. This is the first one. I bear willing witness that I owe more to the fire and the hammer and the file than to anything else in the Lord's workshop. I sometimes question whether I have ever learned anything except through the rod. When my schoolroom is darkened, I see most. Uh, then he says this. This essentially worked out to be true in his own life. I'm not sure you want to take this as a universal principle, but listen to what Spurgeon says here. The Lord frequently appears to save his heaviest blows for his best beloved ones. If any one affliction be more painful than another it falls to, the lot of those whom he most distinguishes in his service. The gardener prunes his best roses with most care. Chastisement is sent to keep successful saints humble, to make them tender towards others, to enable them to bear the high honors which their heavenly friend puts upon them. But he hath not given me over unto death. Let's go to the last one. I think this is just true of salvation in general in the Christian life. Now, if God saves us, it will be a trying matter. All the way to heaven, we shall only get there by the skin of our teeth. We shall not go to heaven sailing along, with sails swelling to the breeze, like seabirds with their white wings. But we shall proceed full often with sails rent to ribbons, with masts creaking, and the ship's pumps at work both night and day. We shall reach the city at the shutting of the gate, but not an hour before. You know, it's not only true in many of our lives in varying degrees, true in Spurgeon's life, it was true in Paul the Apostle's life. Let me, let me close with this final example from Paul's life in 2 Corinthians. You know, 2 Corinthians is the most biographical or autobiographical of his letters. Paul shares more about his own personal sufferings and difficulties and struggles and stresses and pains and anxieties and difficulties in 2 Corinthians than any other letter. It's very personal. And he opens the book up with it. Paul is not this dude who pretends like, my goodness, you know, be faithful, everything's going to go great. It's quite the opposite. Through many tribulations we must enter the, the kingdom of God. Look at what he says. Look, how I, look at what he says to the church. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself now that's that's part of Paul's ministry experience so Tom so hard we despaired of life itself 
God had a reason for that, and that's what he shares in the next verse. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. How do you learn to rely on God and not on yourself? How do you learn to earnestly seek God like Psalm 63? It's the wilderness. Let's pray together. And Lord, I just pray you'd help us endure. Help us not only survive, but to thrive. I pray for the Christians in our body that are suffering. I pray you'd give them help. I pray you'd give them strength and grace. I pray they, their faith in Jesus would be strengthened through this trial. And there's so many things that happen and difficulties we face in life that we don't understand. We look to you for help. God, in the midst of them, help us to resolve to praise you. To praise you, God, though we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I can't imagine better days or anything worse than what we've endured or are enduring. Help us to learn from David to praise you. Help us, God, to hope in future vindication. Knowing, God, that sin is the, the root of all the problems in the world and all the problems in our life. And that Jesus, who died, will be satisfied. And earth and heaven will be one. That you will deal with the corruption of this world and our lives. And that's why we say, even so come, Jesus. Help us to look eagerly toward your return. And God, as we navigate the wilderness, help us to look to David and to your word as a guide. So Lord, help us to earnestly seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand and worship God. Let's praise his name. We have the opportunity tonight with our voices to praise his name. He's always worthy. His steadfast love is better than life. Let's think about that as we sing. What God has done for us in Christ in sending his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Sent Jesus to die. In fact, it pleased God to crush him so that we could be made righteous. We who are sinners could be declared righteous because of the death of Jesus Christ through faith in him. And that's the means, friends. It's through trusting Jesus alone. So trust him. Trust him to be right with God. Trust him to get to God. And trust him with your trials. And lean on him, the one who upholds you. And remember and think about the fact of what God has done for us in Christ. His steadfast love is better than life. I will praise him.